So welcome to this edition of Talk To Me With Dave Ward. Joining me this week is Canadian singer-songwriter Sylvia Tyson. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you, Dave. So I just want to get right into it and just sort of ask you, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and sort of how you first got into music? I was born and raised in Chatham, Ontario, and I come from a musical family. Um, my mother was a classically trained pianist from about the age of five. And uh, when I was growing up, she was an organist and choir leader in our church. And, uh, and my dad uh, just played music by ear. He, he loved uh, the organ. And that was his, his primary instrument. And can you describe sort of what, was there a point that you had really decided, like, I, I really like this, I can write songs, I'm into, was there a point? Well, the writing songs came later. Early on, I was interested in, in folk music, and it's hard to say how I came to it. Probably the earliest thing that I can say is that there was a, a book, a poetry book we had in high school called Grass of Parnassus, and in it there was a, an old English ballad. I think it was Sir Patrick Spence, and uh, whoever had put it in the book had had a forethought to put a line of music with it. And I thought, oh, this is a song, right? <laughs> and so I learned it and, uh, and started looking for, for other stuff. Uh, not a lot of uh, uh, places to find that kind of music in Chatham. You know, the, there weren't albums available and it wasn't on radio. And so I just sort of was a loner in that respect. And sort of, when did you end up in Toronto and sort of what was the music scene like here? I moved to Toronto in the fall of 1959. And there was a budding music scene, very budding. <laughs> um, but uh, as we got into like 60, 61, there were probably more places to play than there were people to play in them. Coffee houses, you know, um, no, no, no licensed premises at all. And uh, we just sort of uh, learned by doing. <laughs> and what was like, uh, sort of, was there a point where you were playing around the music scene that you had decided, like, I really like this, this is something I think Oh, I that's why I moved to Toronto. I, I told my parents I was going to Toronto to be a folk singer. And what did they think of that? Uh, well, actually, their, their view was fairly enlightened for the day. They, my, <laughs> I remember my dad saying, uh, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always come home and get married. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so when you first started coming here and meeting people then, again, sort of how did you immerse yourself? Did you play covers? Did you play originals? Did you go out for a few songs? And how did it work? I had met Ian on a, on a trip to Toronto before I actually moved here. But when I got to Toronto, he was on one of his annual treks out to BC to see his folks and all his old friends. So I was kind of adrift a for a little while. But uh, when he got back, we, um, we started do doing the odd thing together, although I did some solo stuff as well. I, I, uh, I performed as the only musical performer on Poetry Night at the Bohemian Embassy with all of those uh, very serious U of T poets. <laughs> and at what, uh, what point did, uh, did you guys decide, okay, you know, we're going to cut a record? Like, when did it all start to sort of pick up? Well, by, by about 61, we sort of become the Kansas City stars in, in Toronto, you know, and, and uh, thought, well, people think we're really good. We're going to go down to New York and find ourselves a manager and get ourselves a record, you know, so that's what we did. And, you had, like, and can you explain that? Because I think for a lot of people that I know these days in the music business, 
The idea of being able to just head down to New York and meet some people and get signed, I mean, obviously you guys had a wealth of talent. How did you just walk into a city like that and meet people? Well, we had a few names. <laughs> um, we knew that, um, uh, you know, that the names of some managers and some record labels. And as it turned out, the, the first place that we went was a, a huge, uh, high-ceilinged apartment on Central Park West that uh, Albert Grossman shared with George Ween, who was the founder of, of course, the jazz and, and folk festivals. And uh, he asked us to audition, which we did right in the middle of the floor of this huge sort of stately apartment. And uh, his response was, uh, well, I really like you, but I just signed this trio and I don't know how much time I'm going to have. So, that was Peter, Paul and Mary. So. so he obviously found the time, though. Well, I think he realized that we were sort of low-maintenance Canadians. That's hilarious. And so can you describe to me sort of cutting that album for the first time and, and sort of getting that first hit? Do you, really, do you remember how you felt? Well, we didn't have a hit for quite a long time, um, although... Um, the, the song that, that was the first song that Ian ever wrote, New Four Strong Winds, became eventually a hit. Um, but we were recording for Vanguard Records and, and it was a small label. We'd, I suppose uh, we uh, signed with them because the folk acts that we knew of were with Vanguard and that seemed to be the thing to do. Um, our manager, Albert Grossman, was not that keen for us to sign with them. He wanted something that had a little more broad appeal. But uh, as well as uh, being low maintenance, we were strong-minded. <laughs> so when did things, like when, once you started, you recorded and had signed, then what types of shows did you start doing in the beginning and what artists did you play with? Albert put us together with an agency called ITA, International Talent Agency, that was founded on work that had, was generated by the Kingston Trio. And they had a map in their front office that had a red pin for every college and university in North America. And it was a mass of red pins. And we probably played most of them. And can you, like, can you describe what it was like going into some of these clubs? What's playing like in North? Did you go up to Northern Ontario and some of these places? What was it like? Not till later. We yeah. played more in the States than we did yeah. here. Well, it was very limited here. I mean, again, college concerts mainly. Uh, because we weren't of a stature to be playing big halls. And, um, you know, there were maybe six, eight universities in, in Canada, and you only played them every two or three years, so that was pretty thin on the ground in terms of work. And do you remember ever at a point where you, was there a point where things started to get big, and you're like, holy, like I'm, I'm on the bill with Bob Dylan? You know, no, because Bob was less known than we were at that point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so... You know, it's, uh, it, it was a gradual build, you know, build, uh, playing universities and small clubs right across the states and, and in Canada too, but not as much here because there simply wasn't as much here. Right. Um, but we were always known as Canadian artists. But, and it just was a slow build. As a matter of fact, uh, when, um, when we five did You Were On My Mind, I didn't even know they'd recorded it. We we just finished playing in, in Huntington Beach, California, and we were driving up the West Coast Highway to back up to Vancouver, and it came on the radio. 
<laughs> we nearly drove off the road. <laughs> and because back then, I mean, people, a lot of people just recorded each other's songs, and, and sure. you know, there, there wasn't always a fine line between cover musicians and, and original artists. Well, Ian and I always recorded other people's songs. I mean, we did a lot of traditional material. When we started writing, of course, we did our own songs, but we always did songs by other people, uh, mainly to keep variety in, in the material, because um, as you probably know, as a, as a songwriter, there's a certain point at which there's a sameness to what you do, and you want to hear a little more variety, and the audience does too. Can you tell me a little bit about Great Speckle Bird and sort of how that began? We had sort of reached an impasse where the folky thing was kind of dying down. The Beatles hit, of course, which had a huge impact on every, everybody and everything. And um, we had done an album in Nashville and had played with some of the great players down there. And we'd taken some time off and, and uh, decided uh, really that, that we didn't want to do it anymore unless we could produce on stage what we'd done on record. That really was the bottom line. And uh, it, was, it was tough sledding because people had a very definite idea as to what Ian and Sylvia did, you know, uh, a couple of acoustic guitars, maybe a bass player, that was it. But uh, when, uh, I can remember playing uh, at Western University in London, setting up on stage, and, and there were people who, when they saw a steel on stage, got up and walked out. That's like, you know, obviously I've heard that story many times with Bob Dylan. When Bob Dylan went to electric, oh, yeah. people resented it, you yeah. know, and... and they, they, they feel some kind of betrayal, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and it leads me to my next question. Um, I, I just interviewed a, a, a man by the name of David Wilcox actually ah, yes. before I came here. And I asked him about how he discovered your band. And, and can you remember the audition when David Wilcox showed up for Great Specklebird? I don't remember the specific audition. Um, but it was obvious he was, a, he was a great player, you know, and, and that he really wanted to do it. And uh, actually, uh, David taught himself to play electric guitar, to play with the great Speckle Bird, you know, to play with Ian and Sylvia. So <laughs> I'd like to think we gave him a little boost in that direction, but he probably would have done it eventually anyway. And what was he like as a young man? Was he well-behaved, troublemaker, hard worker? Uh, really focused on his guitar. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd play a gig, he'd go back to his room and lock himself in the bathroom and play guitar. Can you remember Toronto at the time when you got your start? Was it a conservative place? Uh, well, they didn't call it Toronto the good for nothing. <laughs> and what did that mean for a musician? It, well, it, it, it isn't what it meant for a mu musician, it's what it meant for the arts generally. It was all pretty underground and in, in small clubs, coffee houses. Um, and a lot of it re revolved around the university. And uh, it was a very tight scene and a very supportive one. Everybody knew everybody else and went to see each other and when we played and, and did each other's songs and, you know, that sort of thing. So I believe that you have been doing a bit of writing as well, besides the music. I wrote a novel about five years ago called Joiner's Dream. And since that time, I've been involved uh, in writing a series of murder mysteries, which I'm involved. I'm doing the third one right now. And uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I have interest from a publisher, but not a commitment to that at this point. When did you start uh, writing? 
I've always been a story writer, but it's been in songs. If I had one problem in writing, in writing uh, fiction, writing prose, it's that I'm so used to writing something that's four minutes or, or less <laughs> and expanding the ideas. Uh, it, it actually was alternately uh, daunting and, and inspiring. <laughs> At the same time. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the group quartet that you're currently playing with? Well, we're coming up on, I believe, 23 years together which is some kind of record. A lot of marriages don't last that long. <laughs> um, we're all songwriters. Uh, myself, Caitlin Hanford, Gwen Swick, and uh, Cindy Church. Initially, Colleen Peterson was in the group, but as, as a lot of music fans in Canada know, she, she died quite young. Anyway, as I say, we've been together probably over 23 years now. And uh, we... Uh, we do each other's songs and we sing harmony. We're all natural harmony singers. Uh, we enjoy each other's company. And it's just been a, it's been a, a joy, really. And what, um, is there any, anything on your wish list, anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet that you plan on doing, any projects? Uh, no, I just kind of play it as it lays, you know. <laughs> whatever occurs to me, whatever comes up, whatever I feel like doing, I've, I've Got to be a brat for most of my professional life, you know. I haven't had anybody to boss me around, tell me what to do, what to record, what to write. So I just go on doing that, and if, if I find something that piques my interest, I go for it. What is the driving force in Sylvia Tyson? What is it, do you think, about yourself that made you become a writer, travel around the world? Is there something unique about yourself? I, I think I'm not a natural performer. I was never someone who had to get up and sing and dance for the folks. And my ego's more wrapped up in, in the music I produce and what I write. And I think that if I, I didn't write songs, that I probably wouldn't perform. But I want people to hear the songs. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay.